You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today, we're talking about the Ninth Commandment, um, and, uh, and the Ninth Commandment is found in Exodus 20:16. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray and ask God to help us uh, unpack His Word. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, if you will. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 says, Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Read that again. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the clarity uh, of who you are, the, the, the strength of your character that comes through in your commands, and your commands are for our good. And because of Christ and your spirit, your commands aren't a burden to us. Uh, but Lord, they really, uh, they really are light and easy uh, because you've given us your spirit. You've freed us from our sin. Uh, you freed us from sin so that we can be freed up to love and serve you and our neighbor as you've designed us to. Uh, So Lord, today I pray you would help us understand your word. I pray you would help us understand the law in light of Christ and how in Christ we have forgiveness and we have a renewed and restored relationship uh, where we're made new in him and we're being transformed. We're being changed day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year by the gospel so that we can reflect you uh, in our lives. Uh, And today I pray that you would help us to see how the gospel is meant to change even our words and that little thing uh, that can set a forest to fire, um, the tongue, God, I pray that you would help us uh, to have wisdom and guidance for how to use our tongues, not to, not to lie, not to, uh, not to gossip, not to slander, but Lord, to build up, to give grace uh, and to point people uh, to Jesus. And Lord, we love you and we ask this in your name. Amen. You guys might be familiar with the movie A Few Good Men, uh, where Jack Nicholson uh, plays Colonel Jessup and Tom Cruise, um, <clears throat> never seeming to age. We just watched, uh, went back and watched Top Gun, uh, the original uh, version, uh, and, and you watch the new one, you're like, the guy looks basically the same. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he's the, uh, the kind of uh, prosecuting attorney and um, and he's questioning Colonel Jessup and Jack Nicholson. And he asked a question about this, this situation that happened with the soldiers and this cold code red that was called that ended up leading to one of the soldiers dying. And, uh, and, um, and Cruz asked, like, did you order the code red? You know, and Jack Nicholson, uh, this is why I'm not an actor, but Jack Nicholson <laughs> or his his his. Uh, uh, his lawyer's like, you know, objection, you know, you can't ask that question. And Jack Nicholson's like, no, no, you want, you want answers? Um, and he's like, no, I want the truth. And then, of course, the famous line, right? Jack Nicholson goes, you can't handle the truth, right? Um, and he goes on and talks about how because you, you can't handle the truth because in your little parties that, that you go to where you talk over martinis, you don't want to know the truth of what happens uh, on the battlefield and as soldiers. And, and, and he kind of goes on. And, uh, and in the end, he ends up getting Nicholson to confess to what really happened. Uh, it's a masterful job of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of lawyering skills if you... If if you want to uh, look into that. But uh, the, the statement, you can't handle the truth, is, is something that uh, I think sometimes can, can, uh, can be characteristic of our age. Do we really want the truth? 
Do you want other people to know the truth about you? Do you want to tell people the truth? Do we even know what the truth is? I mean, it's even on the table today. Is there truth, right? And, and if there is truth, can we know truth? And before you think I'm going to give you a philosophical treatise, we're, we're not going to dig into all of that. Uh, but we're going to look at what God's word has to say about truth and actually how it answers some of the deepest questions that we have. You see, Exodus 2016 is the ninth commandment, and it speaks about giving false testimony, prohibits giving false testimony. And, and we're going to look at that in, in just a minute, uh, what, what that speaks to. Uh, but it's more than just false testimony in the sense of a court of law. Uh, it's, it's more of just Jack Nicholson on trial, right? Uh, it's speaking about the way we use our words and the truthfulness of our words, the integrity of our words. And, uh, and, and we've been looking at different catechisms that help unpack uh, these commands. And the Heidelberg Catechism is one we've looked to each week. Uh, and it says this in relation to the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment, what does the ninth commandment require? I must not give false testimony against anyone. Or twist one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and in everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. And because they're British and cool, they use the you with honor. Um, and, and so uh, here we have an explanation of what the ninth commandment requires. Uh, and it shows just how uh, broad and expansive it is as it relates to our words. It says things like we must not only give false testimony in the courts, but not, not give false testimony anywhere. And if we're not to give false testimony, we must love the truth. And if we're to love the truth, then we have to defend and promote not just the truth, but even our neighbor's honor and reputation. Um, and so I want us to see three things uh, the ninth commandment shows us. The first is that the ninth, the ninth commandment prohibits false testimony and upholds due process. You see, the, the, the primary context, uh, or at least the first context that our minds should go to as we hear uh, the ninth commandment is, is actually a legal context. Uh, it's saying and prohibiting that we not speak falsely against someone in a court of law, uh, that we not give testimony that isn't true, uh, to give testimony that would be false so as to hurt them or to protect ourselves. But also in doing this, it also demonstrates and in, in throughout the, the passages that we'll mention here in a minute, it upholds due process, meaning um, that and this isn't meant to, to be kind of a, a legal framework here. But it, it really shows us that, that we have a responsibility not just to, to speak the truth, but also to protect other people from being lied against. Uh, and, and thus a due process. And so the ninth commandment, uh, in fact, is, is demonstrating to us a concern, not just for the truth, but a concern for our neighbor. It's the first commandment in all the Ten Commandments to use the word neighbor. Do you see the, the word neighbor there at the end uh, in verse 16? Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Of course, all the other commands not to commit adultery, not to honor your mother and your father, to not steal, to not murder. Um, all of those things imply your neighbor, right? Like you can't do that to an imaginary uh, person. There's somebody that you are sinning against in those ways, and that person is your neighbor. Uh, here, though, it makes it explicit and demonstrates this concern for our neighbor. And so we shouldn't give false testimony in a court of law, but we also shouldn't be one who condemns rashly 
or, uh, or condemns on the basis of one witness. Uh, but instead, Proverbs 18:17 says that there's one who states his case first and it seems right. And then another comes along and examines it. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 19 kind of uh, digs into this and it says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in, uh, in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge <clears throat> be established. And then it goes on to, to demonstrate the penalty for those who give false witness. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both the parties of the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judge who are in office in those days, and the judge shall inquire diligently. And if that witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and <clears throat> upholding a strong uh, penalty for bearing false witness. It was meant to protect one's neighbor and the idea of due process. <clears throat> and so we have a concern for the truth, but a concern for our neighbor and speaking the truth. And, and this is foundational to much of how law is practiced today. And yet it's when this is subverted and distorted that we have all kinds of injustice. I, I mean, I was looking up story. I've seen at least two stories in the last two weeks of somebody uh, being falsely accused um, and, and being released from prison because they found out that accusation was false. Sometimes, sometimes five years uh, after the fact, sometimes 43 years after the fact. Um, and, and we see time and time again how uh, when God's commands, when God's word isn't, um, isn't honored, how it brings not only, um, not only uh, guilt upon the person who breaks it, but it brings destruction upon others who experience it. And that's exactly what happens when we don't, um, when we don't uh, speak truthfully and we, don't, uh, and we, and we, we, we give false testimony. And so the ninth commandment on a foundational level is saying you shouldn't speak falsely against a neighbor to bring them harm or to defend yourself. And in doing so by, by indirect or by implicit connection up, upholds due process. But also I want us to see if we're to obey the ninth commandment, if we're to be people who speak truthfully in a court of law and in everywhere, everywhere else, then foundationally we have to be people who know and love the truth. And the ninth commandment, ninth commandment teaches us to know and love the truth. This is kind of the, the truth underneath the command. Why obey the ninth commandment? Why not bear false witness? Why not lie if, if it advances your cause? Why not hold back the truth if it uh, leads a, a, your enemy to take the fall? Why be people who are truthful even at our own hurt? Because we ought to be people who know and love the truth. You see, it, it brings up these other topics like lying. Uh, behind lying is always deceit, slander, misrepresentation, gossip. And in doing so, it promotes the value of truth and truth telling. And it does this because as all of God's commands, they're grounded in God's character. God says, don't uh, dishonor your mother and father because he values the family. God says, don't murder because he values life. God says, don't commit adultery because he values marriage. God says, don't steal because God is the giver uh, of every good gift and he's entrusted things to our care. Therefore, we shouldn't take them from others. And then God says, don't bear false witness because God values truth. One commentator said, everything about God reflects absolute and undiluted truth. 
In him there is no lie. His justice and his righteousness are established in absolute veracity, in absolute truth. He hates lies, and his followers must be people of truth. His creatures are obligated to truth. You see, the commands here in Exodus 20 are given to God's people Israel, whom God had redeemed. They are to define what people who belong to God live like, what we look like. The implicit assumption is that we might live in a world that doesn't value truth. We might live in a world that says you cannot know truth. We might live in a world that says your truth is yours and mine is mine. But God's people aren't to operate in that way. God's people are to operate with the foundation of God being the truth. And in fact, that, that is essential for us to understand that God is truth. Consider Numbers twenty three nineteen. It says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? He has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Isaiah 45 there in uh, 18 and 19, uh, God's unpacking his character. And in verse 19, he says, I didn't speak in secret in a land of darkness. I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. Jesus showed up and he said, whoever receives the testimony about me uh, and the one who sent me and whoever receives his tes testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And what is true that God sent Jesus? He sent his son. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. And whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey or believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus elsewhere said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In Romans 3, verses 3 through 4, it says, Let God be true and everyone else a liar. In 1 John 5, 20, it says, We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. You say sometimes today in English, we, uh, we don't like repetition because it, it, it maybe is redundant. And, and so uh, if, you're, if you're being edited, I have uh, use this thing called Grammarly because I'm not smart enough to edit my own sentences and it edits it for me. Um, and it'll tell me like, you're being redundant. Don't use that word. That's a vague modifier. You know, don't use this too much. And, um, and so, uh, and, and some of you may be thinking, wow, Michael, you use that. And some of the emails you send out still don't make sense. Um, that's another question. Um, but, uh, in doing so it'll, it'll try to reduce redundancy. Um, but here God's word does it intentionally. Do you, do you see him who is true, him who is true? He is the true God and eternal life. God is truth. He is not only the foundation of truth, but he himself is truth. And not only is God in his essence true, God's word, which he has revealed to us, is truth. See, I think it's important as we understand the Bible, uh, the Bible comes to us uh, and, and we say, well, isn't the Bible just man trying to figure out God? Isn't the Bible a man's attempt, his best attempt perhaps mistaken attempt to figure out God. But the testimony of Scripture is not that it's man's uh, testimony about God, but that it's God's testimony, God's revelation about himself. And in God's revelation about himself, it would make sense that if the Lord, if God is truth, then his word that comes to us is truth. And of course, it stands up against our questions and invites us to consider its questions. And it gives testimony like this. 
In Psalm 19, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's good news for folks like me. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of God, the commands of God are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 119, uh, uh, a beautiful psalm that is right in the middle of the Bible. That's basically all 170 something verses of it are about God's word, except two. Um, But two of those that are about God's word says, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Your righteousness, Psalm 119, verse 142, is, is righteous forever and your law is true. God's word gives testimony about itself that it's true. Jesus showed up and and he said to the the Jews at that time who were around him, who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, the truth isn't just cognitively known, but it sinks down to our hearts and it transforms us. If we know the truth, it changes us. It sets us free, Jesus says. In fact, John 17, verse 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, sanctify my people, set them apart, make them more like me. How do you do that? In the truth. Where is the truth? I don't know. Somewhere. Maybe we can't find it. No, your word is truth, Jesus said. In Ephesians 4, he said that the truth is found in Jesus. In Colossians 1, he said that the word of truth is the gospel. In 2 Timothy 3.16, he says all scripture, old and new, is breathed out by God. It means it's where we get the word inspiration. That, that scripture isn't, uh, isn't our um, uh, expiration about who God is, but it's his breathed out revelation of who he is. And, and that word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. As a, as a pastor... Uh, I look to God's word as, as kind of my marching orders of what I'm supposed to do as I stand up here and, and have, <clears throat> you know, somewhere between an hour and two hours to preach God's word to you every Sunday. Um, and and one, of my, one of my verses that I look to is 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. If you're new, that's a joke. Sometimes I go a little long, but not that long. Um, <clears throat> and, and one of my favorite verses is uh, passages of 2 Timothy 4. It's Paul's last book that he wrote most likely before he died under Nero. Uh, somewhere in the mid-60s uh, of the first century. And Paul said this to Timothy, his young associate, who he left in Ephesus to continue some work of strengthening and establishing the church there. He said, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Not just when you feel like it, not just when you think people will like it, but be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. Hold me to that. Because he says this, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. See, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is because I believe it shoots us straight. Uh, one of the things that I think has been true since Paul's day and has been and is true today is that all of us are bent towards wanting to hear things that that satisfy us, that seem right to us. Uh, we've been studying the book of Judges and our men's Bible study this summer during summer stretch. And this week we'll finish it up. And tw- 
twice at the end of the book of Judges in Judges 18. And in the very last verse of Judges 21 is there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's exactly what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve looked at the fruit and they listened to the lie of the serpent. They did what was right in their own eyes. Look, this is what, we're all, this is what we all do when left to ourselves is we do what's right in our own eyes. I don't know. It seems right to me. And, and in that, in that uh, kind of fundamental direction of our hearts, God says the antidote, the response to our wandering hearts our wondering minds, our itching ears, our desire to hear what pleases us and satisfies our desires is to preach the word, is to to preach God's truth. And so we see that God's word is, is truth because God himself is truth and he's given us his word. And we live in a world today where we prefer narrative over truth. Our version of reality as opposed to reality itself. And, and listen, I, I'm not just throwing rocks out there. I'm, I'm pointing the finger back at us. All of us can be tempted to, 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 to define our own reality and live according to our own narrative. And we protect the narrative at all costs. But the Bible tells, tells us that there's only one personal pronoun we can be, put before the truth. And it's his with a capital H. It's his truth. All truth is God's truth. One uh, Dutch um, theologian, Herben Bavink, um, it's a sweet last name to say, um, he said, God is truth and absolute fullness. He therefore is the primary, original truth, the source of all truth, the truth in all truth. He is the ground of truth, of true being, of all things. These guys got a little wordy. They said, he's the truth of all things, of knowability and conceivability, the ideal and archetype of all truth, of ethical being, of all rules and laws, in light of which nature and the manifestation of all things should be judged on which they should be modeled. God is the source and the origin of the knowledge of truth in all areas of life. That's good, but I, I prefer um, <clears throat> Augustine, a North African church father. He said it this way, wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. Or as some have summed up, all truth is God's truth. It's fundamental for us to understand that God is the source of truth. And as his people, we are to know and love truth, which means we are to know God. And how do we know God? We know God through his word. And so we are to know and love God's word. But also I want to step back and I recognize in this audience there are many people who work in various fields, whether it be in engineering or in science or in medicine or um, uh, in education and uh, different, different aspects of work. And, and we ask ourselves, if all truth is God's truth, how am I to navigate in my workspace, in, in my field? And, and I think it's important to understand this, that we should not be people who shrink back. We should not be people who only are willing to look at this book though I, I'm, I'm willing to bet we should look at this book more perhaps than we do, that this is foundational to our understanding of truth. But God has revealed himself in his word and in nature and wherever truth may be found and whomever speaks truth that accords with reality and with God's word has found truth and that truth belongs to God. We should not run from it. We shouldn't hide from it. We should seek to understand and mind the depths of knowledge that God has given us and the subjects that he's put before us. And don't shrink back from believing that God is there in the midst of it. The biggest mistake we make is to, is to silo God off from our studies and from uh, our, our vocational pursuits, thinking that he doesn't have a place. No, he is the very foundation of all of it. 
And it's when we have the eyes and the lens to see him in the midst of it that we begin to fully appreciate the work that we're called to do. And so there is truth, and that truth is essential and foundational for us to pursue. We don't want to disconnect our studies and our work from the foundation that there is truth, and truth can be grounded in our Creator God. And I'll say this because I think sometimes in our, in our day we question whether or not we can know truth. And what I would say is, in a fallen world, yes, it's, it's, it's true that we may not know truth exhaustively. We may not have truth comprehensively. I don't know if, if you've ever dug into something and you've scratched your head and you're like, I don't know. Whether you're looking at new pictures from outer space or you're looking at the intricacies of the human body or you're uh, marveling at some architectural feat or you're just looking at how a child learns math. And you go, there are some things that I don't understand. <laughs> there are some things I don't get how it all fits together. That doesn't mean that just because we cannot know exhaustively that we cannot know genuinely, that we cannot know truly that there is truth. And that truth is grounded in God, not not ex, uh, not um, exclusively revealed in his word, but also revealed in nature and accords with his word and never contradicts his word. And the reason this is important is because if not apart from this foundation, then truth is a social construct. And that is the argument of some today, that truth is made, not found. The philosopher Richard Rorty said, truth is made, not found. I like to say community is made, not found. But truth, he says, is made, not found. That you make your own truth. Nietzsche said that truth is the sum of human relations which have been poetically and rhetorically intensified, transferred, and embellished, and which after long usage seem to people to be fixed. So it's just the stuff that over a long period of time that uh, we've just come to believe is fixed and therefore that stuff is truth. But ultimately, that's just the collective idea of everybody. And ultimately, he's saying the same thing as the philosopher uh, Rorty, that truth is made, not found. And to believe that, you, I, I think the way to, to position it, and, and maybe this is a broad brushstroke, but I think it gets at the essential points. You have to either believe behind the truth is self and all of its subjectivity, or God and his objectivity. It's either us and as many of the us's as there are, there's that many truths. Or there's God. And there is a foundational truth that we may not always exhaustively and fully see, but that we are called upon to pursue and know truly and genuinely. And I think when we step back and we ask ourselves, what's the end result when we find the truth? Or, or you make the truth. What's the end result when you, when you make the truth, as Richard Rorty says? Well, the end result when you make the truth is perhaps self-advancement, the raw self-advancement. Perhaps it's pride. Maybe it's the collective greater good that there's something good out there that you're pursuing. You've made some truth that benefits other people. From a purely humanistic standpoint, why seek some collective good that is for the benefit of other people? If there is no truth upon which uh, to build and we ourselves are at the center of it, why not only seek what's good for us? But then other, on the other end, what's the outcome or the end result when you find truth? Well, God's word would say that, the, that true knowledge, that understanding the truth brings enjoyment of God. It brings access to knowing his purposes. 
It gives us a glimpse of objective reality. To truly know God is to truly know self. If God is our creator, then to know him is to know something about ourselves and his purpose and his design for us. I don't mean to go VBS on you, but do you know that God has created us with a purpose, with a design for us to live for his glory, for good works for us to do? Uh, You know what I'm saying? If you were there, you're tracking with me. That that was the hand motions. I love what John Piper said. He said, alongside all truth is God truth. We need to say this, that all truth exists to display more of God and awaken more love for God. When you get a glimpse of the truth, when you understand how God has ordered the world and ordered our lives, you begin not just to know truth, but you begin to worship God. It's knowing the truth that brings about worship. And we are to be people who know and love the truth, which is to say we are to be people who pursue knowing and loving God and his word. And then finally, the ninth commandment teaches us to speak the truth. John Calvin said, the eighth commandment ties our hands, not to steal. The ninth commandment ties our tongue. It it fundamentally, beyond bearing false witness, speaks to the the truth-telling and the uh, prohibiting lying and slander and gossip and deceit in all of its forms. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven uh, that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, notice what it does twice of these seven things it says. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. That's twice, uh, two of the seven things that God hates, and one who sows discord among brothers. If you think the lie isn't that big of a deal, consider Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. He said, there are seven things that I hate, and two of them, in essence, repeat themselves. And those two things are lying. And so to get to the bottom of this, to challenge us to consider what this means, here are two questions for you to consider. Do you represent yourself truthfully? Do you represent yourself truthfully? In the big and small details of your life, do you exaggerate to make yourself look better? I'm going to give a pass on the fish story, right? Like if if the fish story has grown a little bit, however big the fish was, you know, like however um, maybe much you won by in high school. Like, I mean, it's been a while. It's probably not that big of a deal, right? No, even foundationally, sometimes we joke about about the, the little white lie or the little story. But, but honestly, consider, do you represent yourself truthfully? Do you twist or distort the truth to protect yourself or advance your cause? Do you dismiss a lie even if it's small or, or convenient? I'll never forget during our wedding um, <clears throat> uh, premarital counseling, my pastor um, who was doing it, he, he asked, he was telling us a story. We were talking about communication and the importance of telling the truth. And one day he left the office late. He got caught up doing some other things. His wife really wanted him home at a certain time. Uh, and when he got home, uh, he said, uh, babe, I'm sorry. I was so late. Uh, the traffic was terrible on uh, Durant Road. <clears throat> and, and she asked him, she was like, was it, was it really? Or did you just leave late? Was it, was it really bad traffic or, or did, did, did you just leave late? And, and, and I remember thinking, well, I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of fuzzy. Like, right, sometimes you leave late, but the traffic is bad, you know, and therefore <laughs> you just focus on the one thing rather than the other. Um, but, but she said to him that day, if, if you don't tell me the truth about when you leave work, it, 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 you just left late. So what? Own that, that you left late. 
but you're willing to cover that up, what else will you lie about? And I thought to myself that day and still think often, like, telling the truth no matter what. We have, to, we have to be honest, even when it's to our own hurt. So do you represent yourself truthfully? And then do you represent others truthfully? This is at the heart of, uh, of loving our neighbor. Do you talk about others behind their back? Now, here's, here's one thing where it's important for us to understand. It's one thing to just say the truth about someone, but it's important to know when you should say the truth about something or someone. I didn't lie about them. I just said the truth. Did you hear what they were doing? It's what's the intent? What's the purpose? Why are you sharing it? What, what good does it do your neighbor? Talking behind their back is gossip, even when it's true. Getting back at others by spreading false information, that's slander. Passing along potentially false information, just, you know, as an FYI, did you hear? It's the small stuff that happens sometimes in the water cooler conversation or the how you doing, catching up sort of conversation. Do you assume the best about others' motives? Did you see that email they sent? I bet you they were talking about me. Now, listen, I'm preaching to myself. Sometimes it's easy to to look into others and take the most uncharitable angle about their actions or their words. Are you quick to jump in on condemning others even when you don't know the full story or you don't know all that happened? I mean, we live in a, in, a, in a day and age where it's about not what story is true, but what story gets out there quickest. And then if it's not true, it gives a little addendum at the top of the story, but then it's all out there, basically. Did you hear? Uh, when you read it, it's like, well, actually, that's not what happened. Do, you, do we rush in to condemning others? This quote by Trevin Wax stuck out to me this week. He said, how easy is it to assume the worst about those I don't like or I don't know, especially people who seem bigger than me, like athletes or politicians or, I don't know, maybe we can give them a pass, celebrities or uh, those who are unlike me, a different faith or a different color or different politics or who are far from me in a physical or relational distance. When we have these people who are different and apart from us, how easy it is to assume the worst. Sometimes we even do it with those who are closest to us. Do you represent yourself honestly? And do you represent others truthfully? And then finally, Ephesians 4, we can't dig into all of it, but I think Ephesians 4 is a good guide for our words. And I just want to point us to a few points that it gives us. And Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 gets to the point, I referenced it, it earlier, it gives us these, uh, these principles that uh, our, our words are to be, um, to be truthful. In Ephesians 4.25, it says uh, that we are to put away lying and speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. The church is full of liars. How are you today? I'm fine. Don't we all do it? I'm not saying you got to break down when somebody asks you how are you over coffee, right? Um, but we all hold back. Sometimes we even, we even mislead because we're unwilling to be honest about where we're at and what we're going through. You see, our corporate identity as believers implies we have an obligation to one another. This is the foundation of membership. We have an obligation to one another. We're members of one another. Therefore, we speak the truth. Our words aren't meant to tear down, but they're meant to, to edify, to build up. It takes nothing to tear a person down. In just a moment, you can tear a person down with your words. It takes intentionality and purpose to build someone up. What do you want to be known for? 
to tear down or to build up, that we should speak timely words. What we say matters when we say it matters. Do the words fit the occasion? Are you joking in a serious moment or serious in a, in a jovial moment? Is, is, are you speaking a timely word? It's one thing to speak a hard word at a proper time. It's another thing to say an unnecessary word at a poor time. Even when it's true, are your words timely? Are your words gracious? Ephesians 4.29 says that our words are to give grace, that no foul language should come from our mouth, but only what is good and building up for someone so that it gives grace to those who are here. Giving grace is speaking to others, not on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of what Christ has done for, that, for us. So when we speak, do we speak in a way to others that makes the grace of God believable to them or in a way that makes the grace of God unbelievable to them? And I don't mean like in a cool, unbelievable way. Our words are to be gracious. They will be spirit-filled. Ephesians 4.29 speaks about our language, and then it goes on to say, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit who you were sealed with uh, for the day of redemption. See, the Spirit empowers change in our lives. So when we speak, are we speaking in a way that pleases the Spirit or grieves the Spirit? We speak in a way that pleases God or grieves God. And then finally, our words are to be what I call gospel saturated. You see there in Ephesians 4.31, it says, Put away bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander. Let it be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Resentful attitudes, indignant outbursts, festering anger, shouting, abusive language, hostility, and malice, none of these things are to be describing a believer. And when they are, we should be led to repentance. And the truth is they will be characteristic of us at some point. That's why it says we ought to be kind and forgive one another. See, those who are, those, the, the idea or the, the truth of kindness and forgiveness is only possible through the gospel. And those who know the gospel are changed by it, and therefore they display kindness and forgiveness. And then finally, one of my favorite uh, statements is there in Ephesians uh, 4.15, talking about how we grow in Christ. It says we're to speak the truth in love. You see, Ephesians 4 tells us that the truth is found in Jesus. So speaking the truth in love isn't just saying what you want as nicely as possible. It's not just saying a hard thing, but kindly. Speaking the truth in love is speaking the truth of Jesus into all of life in such a way that not only we're faithful to Jesus, but we also display the love of Jesus. We speak the truth of Jesus and we display the love of Jesus. John Stott said it this way, truth becomes hard if not softened by love and love becomes soft if not strengthened by truth. They can't be separated. They ought to go together. That's how God made it. That's who God is. Full of truth. Full of love. That's the gospel. The true message of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. Who was publicly slandered and lied to and bared false witness against. But who no word came out of his mouth. And went to the cross on our behalf. Taking the judgment for our sin. For our lying, our slandering, our gossip. Throw in the other sins as well. And then he rose from the dead. And because of that truth and the love of God displayed through that work of the cross and the resurrection, we can be changed. And so when we think about uh, the gospel in our words, it, it forces us to consider two words, two questions. Has the gospel changed you? Do you know Christ? 
you know what it means to be known by him, to be in a relationship with him through his through trusting in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. It's the best invitation in the world to know him and better yet to be known by him that he calls us his child. And if you don't know him, you can today call out to him, tell him the truth about your sin and receive the truth of his death and resurrection. But that's not the only thing we should ask ourselves. Not only has the gospel changed you, but how far down has it worked in your life? Or maybe I should say, how far up has it worked? Because the question is, is the gospel changing your words, believer? Is it changing the way you speak about yourself, about others? God's commands are for our good. They demonstrate our need for him and our need for the gospel. But once having come to know him, And being empowered by His Spirit, they show us how to please God. And I want us to be people who not only live lives that display and declare the gospel, but whose lips not only declare, but also in the way that we speak to others when they observe, how we speak to one another in the body of Christ, how we speak in our community, they observe the display of the love of God and the truth of God. Let's be people who love the truth and speak the truth in love. Let's pray.